Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Resource Roadmap Show. This is where we get to spend an hour with the Therapy Insights writers talking about the new content that we just added to the library and get all kinds of information about the background research and different creative ways to use those resources. So we have Stephanie and Jennifer here with us today. Hello. Hi. And this is actually going to be our last Resource Roadmap Show. We hope you've enjoyed them. We've had a lot of fun creating them. Um, and we do offer these shows at this time for ASHA CEUs. So if you're watching this and you pay for the CEU feature with your Therapy Insights membership, you can log in and answer a couple questions about this episode and get credit for that. Um, if you don't have that, you can sign up anytime at therapyinsights.com. If you are a member of Therapy Insights, you have access to all of the resources that we're talking about today. And again, if you don't have access yet, you can go to therapyinsights.com and sign up. So we are going to dive into our resources today. I'm going to share my screen so we can all see what we're looking at. And the first piece is all about visual scanning and attention. It's a four-page resource, and the first two pages have some words on them and you're connecting the words and I'll let Stephanie tell us more about how that works and then I have the next two pages on the next screen so when you're ready to talk about those stuff I can go to the next page so tell us about this resource yes personally I'm so excited about this one I have a handful of patients I want to use it with already um so visual scanning and attention we have some word-based ones, and then eventually we're going to get to kind of some more complex, like everyday, organizing some books. As you can tell, I'm a little obsessed with books, so great idea. So the first one, the directions you want to read the words below and connect them in alphabetical order. Um, so with that one, there's all words that have a capital initial letter. On the second one, we wanted to just go a little bit more in depth. So a patient has to pay attention to uppercase and lowercase, but then there's also an added element where some of the words have like a capital, like British and then books. So with this direction, they want you to go from lowercase B to the uppercase B, and then you keep going in order. Um, alphabetically. So I just think I haven't seen anything like that recently. And I think it's just going to be a great kind of reading task. And um, also that added element of attention that the patient has to switch between two letter, two words with the same letter, and then some just single words um, with, the, with one letter. So I already know I'm gonna, who I'm going to be using these with. Um, so then the next one is a bookshelf, and what the person is asked to do is to place the books on the top of the shelf and working down, putting the books in alphabetical order using the, the author's last name. Um, so I have actually read all of these books. They're all phenomenal, five stars for me. So if you need a book idea, there you go. Um, but this one is just going to be so much fun. And again, I have some patients who love reading too. So who doesn't want to organize a bookshelf, right? Absolutely. And you have To Root and To Rise on there with Carol Starr and Being Mortal with Dr. Tulga One Day, which are two of my favorites. So thank you for including those. <laughs> you yes, got it. This. And wish you were. Go ahead, Jennifer. 
I said, I love this activity. We're going to talk a little bit more about left neglect later in this show. And I think this is a great activity that we can use for treating something like that, kind of with, you know, the first couple being very basic, introducing them to strategies and how to use them, and then kind of going to more, you know, complex and functional where they can implement those strategies that they learned. Yeah, I agree. I don't know if you two have read Wish You Were Here by Jody Picoult, but there's a speech-language pathologist in the book, so it's really good. That's been on my list. Um, I love Jody Picoult because she, like, every time you open one of her books, you just instantly get drawn in. I have a toddler right now, so it's taking me, like, a year to read a book at the moment, and I'm right now- You want to get into audiobooks. Yes, audiobooks, podcasts. Even those, I'm yes. like, limited. You got it. <laughs> I cut you off. What book did you say you were reading right now? Right now I'm reading Barbara Kingsolver's new novel, Demon Copperhead. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, okay. I'm excited about these. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you, Stephanie. All right, moving on to the next resource. This is an amazing 14-page resource all about structural vocal pathologies. And Jennifer, you wrote this one, so I'll pass it off to you. Yeah, so, excuse me, this idea, my idea for this resource kind of came more recently. So within the past year, I've been trained in completing fees. And so, you know, as I'm doing fees a lot, I'm seeing uh, the larynx and the pharynx and different things. And Um, You know, I think this is a big topic that we discuss often in the field of speech pathology is, you know, I feel like we don't learn as much as we should in our schooling. And um, although I did have kind of the basic understanding of dysphagia and voice, you know, from my schooling, I don't feel like I ever learned much about, you know, vocal pathologies and things that you see. So um, I think this is a great handout to just kind of get to know different pathologies that you may see when you're completing fees. So um, kind of structural pathologies of the vocal fold include any alteration in the tissue of the vocal fold. Um, and it's really important to, you know, remind ourselves as speech pathologists, we don't diagnose these pathologies, but it's important for us to know kind of what is normal, what is abnormal, be able to describe it properly, you know, the color, the shape of it, um, and then send for the appropriate referrals. Um, So there's many different pathologies on this resource, but I wanted to review um, a couple, one that we're probably more familiar with seeing and one that we may be less familiar with seeing. So the first one is the candida. Um, and so with this vocal pathology, it is, it gives you a description. So the description is a yeast-like fungal infection. Um, it is acquired and it is benign. Uh, it originates in the epithelium or the layer of the surface cells covering the larynx. Um, it can be found in oral, laryngeal, or pharyngeal cavities. I'm sure many of us have seen this on our patients' tongues if we work in the medical side of speech pathology. Um, you may have heard the term thrush, which can be interchanged with oral candidiasis. Uh, the cause is typically from a weakened immune system, from sickness or medications, also cigarette smoking or inhaled cortical steroids can also be factors in causing this. Um, some different signs and symptoms is that the vocal quality may be pressed. I think it really just kind of depends on where it is located, if it's going to cause changes in how the voice sounds. Um, 
Pain also may be present. So I've had patients in the past that had pharyngeal, laryngeal, candida, and they had a lot of pain with swallowing. And so they wanted to be on a modified diet just because of that pain and it was more comfortable for them. It is often, it often resembles leukoplakia, which is another pathology that we talk about in this resource. Um, so just knowing that things can look similar. And again, that's why we don't diagnose as a speech pathologist. Um, and medication and hygiene are really important for fixing this. Um, and then I also just wanted to talk about generalized edema and Rinke's edema. Um, and so if Megan can go to that one. So this is the buildup of fluid. Rinke's edema occurs in the superficial layer of the lamina propria, which is also called Rinke space. Um, and this becomes filled with a gelatinous or thick fluid. Um, this is also acquired. It's benign. Um, you may see diffuse swelling of the laryngeal submucosa. Um, this is usually caused by long-standing trauma or chronic exposure to irritants such as cigarette smoke or stomach acids due to laryngopharyngeal reflux, which we've talked about before on this show. Um, lowered pitch and varying degrees of hoarseness can be signs and symptoms of this. So, it, when I was researching this, I did notice that it is more noticeable in women than men because it does cause a lower pitch in the voice. And so because men's voices typically are already at a lower pitch, that's why it's harder to notice those signs and symptoms in men. Um, it can cause some shortness of breath. Um, and then, you know, when you're doing a visual assessment, you may see some swelling along the entire membranous length of the vocal fold. Um, there may be increased vocal stiffness. Um, there may be increased mass. Um, there may be, you know, an incomplete glottic closure because of it. Um, so again, everybody's kind of visual assessment, sign and symptoms may be a little bit different for all of these pathologies. It's important to remember, but um, just kind of having that general idea and basic knowledge, I feel like is important. Yeah, this resource is incredible, very comprehensive, um, just a wonderful reference to have on hand anytime you're working um, with these and looking at those vocal folds. Yes, and for those that are just listening, it has great pictures too. Mm -hmm. Great very and well laid out. <laughs> great and gross. Yes, that's true. All right, we're going to move on to how to use the PQRST reading strategy. This is a two-page handout that summarizes how what the strategy is and how to use it. And Stephanie, I'll let you tell us more about this one. Absolutely. So I, I do see um, patients who are telling me they want to go back to school or college and maybe after like a brain injury or concussion, reading is just really hard from them for them. And as we know, reading is a big part of school and college. So this is a very kind of well-known strategy, the PQRST reading strategy. But I never really found like a good layout to kind of just have it organized and explained kind of simply for pe people. So I, I really appreciate what was created with our graphic designer. Um, so the PQRST, the P stands for preview. So just really kind of encouraging the person to kind of just glance over what they're reading, 
see if they can kind of pull any of those main ideas out of the headers or the text. The cue is question. So like thinking about what you're going to be learning. So all of this is kind of preparing the brain to kind of focus on the attention and then kind of help with that memory to support because you're you're asking very specific questions and focusing on specific parts of the text. Um, the third step is read and react. So being an active reader, um, that could be even like writing in the margins or taking notes on the side um, just to kind of keep the person engaged. I'm also a highlighter, so like highlighting my textbooks was a thing for me back then. Um, S is kind of once you've read it, try to state and summarize kind of the big ideas of what you read. Like not all the little details, but what was the general takeaway that you were supposed to get out of that? And then the last one is test. So answer questions from your memory and kind of test yourself. So this strategy is really helpful to enhance that reading comprehension for people. And it also has been proven to kind of reduce studying time because the person is more engaged and already taking notes and already asking questions and testing themselves. So it's it's really helpful for people or even just, you know, adults reading a newspaper article. Like it doesn't have to be a college textbook. It can be as simple as reading the newspaper again. Yeah, and I think for a lot of us, this we use this strategy unconsciously, like we're doing it all the time. And I think it's important to really make it concrete and break it down into step-by-step -step instructions for people with a brain injury, because mm -hmm. with a brain injury, the tendency tends to be like, we have to read every single word and we're so focused on the text, task of reading every single word that we're not getting the the overview of what we're supposed to be getting from reading it. So mm -hmm. I think exactly. I think this just makes me oh sorry. No, I was just gonna say this just makes me think of when I was in school and highlighting my textbooks and you don't want to highlight every single word and every single line, but kind of helps picking out that key information too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I still feel like I highlighted everything, but that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> I was not using this strategy back in college, but it it would have helped. I think if I had been more aware of it, I think you're right, Megan. I think subconsciously we are kind of reading the headers and kind of looking for that big, what are we going to be reading about? Um, but I really liked how this handout gives some ideas of like what to include for each of the step and kind of then explains the benefits of, well, why is that important? Um, so, yeah. And for people wanting to use this strategy with your patients, you know, always ask them what kinds of things they like to read. Is there a magazine that they're into? Do they like reading the newspaper? Uh, is there a book they want to read? Like always make sure that it's centered around what they're interested in rather than, you know, grabbing some text that maybe you have on hand that's easy for you to access, but maybe not as interesting for them. Yeah, I usually have my patients even bring in their textbook, which is helpful. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. To your beautiful, gorgeous facility that I got to visit the other day. OMG, if we could all work where Stephanie yeah. works. <laughs> I am very, very lucky, I know. So I'm glad you got to come visit. So cool. I love it. Okay. 
Stephanie, this is also your piece. This is a two-page resource called Changes in Swallowing After Laryngectomy. Um, I like this handout because the first page kind of gives a broad overview of the changes in swallowing. So you could theoretically use that as a handout if you wanted to. And then the second page um, encompasses swallowing changes and it's written in a table format. So you can look for the change and then correlate that to the cause and the treatment. So what else can you tell us about this resource? Yeah, I, I'm in love with this picture that I think just having a visual is so important for patients. And, you know, a lot of times in my facility, they are coming to see the speech therapist before their laryngectomy. So this is an opportunity for us to talk about it. I know this one is changes in swallowing after a laryngectomy, but that is also an important thing to talk about with the patient. Um, so I didn't know this until I was kind of digging in for this handout, but Dr. Theodore Billroth, he completed the first documented total laryngectomy in 1873. Um, and that allowed a patient to return back to an oral diet um, after cancer treatment. Um, and that patient was only about 36 years old. Um, and so I just was like, I can't, I can't wrap my head around that they were doing this surgery back in 1873, but that's phenomenal. Um, so a, a laryngectomy it, it really is something that's a multi-team um, approach. And, you know, it has a doctor involved, just, but I, th I think it's really important for everyone to kind of understand those anatomical changes, especially on how it's going to impact the swallow. So with the, the, like the table part, it does a good job of kind of explaining, you know, a patient may talk about food sticking, like, what could be the cause of that? And then giving this the SLP some ideas for treatment. Um, there's another one where, you know, the patient may complain of like having backflow into their pharynx from their esophagus and kind of explaining what could be causing that and commonly like surgical options or treatments. So this handout does a really nice job of giving the speech therapist some ideas of what they could be hearing what could be causing that? And then what are some possible treatment options? It's not a, you know, an exhaustive list by any means, and it will probably change as future things develop, but I think it's a good springboard at least. Yeah. And there's some really interesting research coming out and strategies being trialed with um, different researchers. And one of the more interesting ones that I saw on this piece was the nasal airflow inducing maneuver, also known as the name or NAIM. And this is where if they have a reduced sense of smell, you can teach them to like do a polite yawn with their mouth closed, which like I can't even, I don't even know if I can do, but I think, I just, I think I'm I really stretching. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm going to like fall asleep doing it, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I did not know about this before this handout. Yeah. So lots of different strategies to try that people can um, look through on this handout. So thank you, Stephanie. We're going to move on to the next. Oh, no, this is an article snapshot. This ties yeah. in that resource. So you wrote this one. Tell us about this research study. Yes. Yeah, so this one is called dysphagia following a total laryngectomy, the effect on quality of life, functioning and psychological well-being. It was written in 2009. 
And so with this article, it really wanted to compare some, you know, scales that we use or scores we use in therapy. So they looked at the University of Washington quality of life measure, and they also looked at the World Health Organization quality of life brief. And then they also used the depression, anxiety, stress score. And so they found that the University of Washington quality of life typically measured more functional aspects of swallowing changes instead of quality of life. And the World Health Organization quality of life brief and the depression, anxiety, stress score could be used to provide more clinical applicable, infor applicable information about the person's quality of life and psychological well-being. So the literature states that there, if there is a change in function, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a change in the person's quality of life after a total laryngectomy. Some people consider, you know, this swallow change just being maybe a small price to pay to kind of have that tumor treated. So, I mean, I think that's also important for us as speech pathologists to think about just because something is impaired or changed we need to evaluate further about the person's quality of life because maybe to us that could feel like a quality of life change but really depending on the person and kind of their values we need to see what's important for them um it was found though that people with dysphagia after a total laryngectomy did have significantly higher levels of depression anxiety and stress compared to those who had a total laryngectomy but no swallowing problems um, and then a person's psychological well-being was an essential factor to evaluate in addition to the swallowing function and quality of life. So I do see people with head and neck cancer. Um, I see a handful of people with total laryngectomies, but I feel like with the advancing cancer treatments, I haven't seen as many of them recently. Um, but I think it's still important for a speech pathologist to consider you know, using that University of Washington quality of life, the World Health Organization quality of life, and that depression, anxiety, and stress scale um, in treatment to kind of get that whole picture of maybe how this is impacting the person. Because maybe just using one of them, there's some limitations that you might miss some important information that you need to help that person. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And anytime that we can be incorporating quality of life measures into all of our assessments, the better. All right. Thank you. The next resource we're going to talk about is a two-page resource called A Broad List of Treatments for Aphasia. So it, this is the place to start if you have a patient with aphasia and you're wondering where to go from your assessment. So Jennifer, tell us about this resource. Yes, so this was requested by one of our subscribers, and while we definitely have some in-depth handouts about some of these different treatments and kind of exactly how to complete them, I think it's great to have a broad list because, you know, every patient that we have with aphasia is a little bit different. Um, as we know, verbal expression, auditory comprehension, reading comprehension, written expression can all be affected. Some can be affected more than others, and so every patient, we're looking for the best treatment for them. And so I think this is a great place to start to just kind of browse through and see, you know, based on that patient's deficits, which one might be a great one to start with. Um, 
when I was doing research for this resource, I definitely saw that there is way more research done for patients who have verbal expression impairment compared to auditory comprehension. Um, I definitely saw that last week when we talked about the treatment for Wernicke's aphasia or last month when we talked about the treatment for Wernicke's aphasia as well. So I want to just go over kind of a few of these that you know, maybe more well-known and a couple that may be less known. Um, so for example, uh, we can talk about script training. So this is creating scripts for a predictable sequence of events, such as ordering at a restaurant or maybe somebody who wants to be able to tell a story. Um, that's probably best for a patient who has more non-fluent aphasia um, and kind of working on that verbal expression. Another treatment that I frequently use is called semantic feature analysis. And so what this treatment does is it targets confrontational naming by practicing kind of that circumlocution strategy, um, generating different semantic features related to a target word. So, for example, if you had a target word that was apple, you might talk about the category that it falls into. What do you do with it or what is it used for? What are some different parts or properties of it? Where might you find it? And kind of what does it make you think of? And so doing all of those things helps us to kind of enhance the semantic mapping or connection of words in our brain, as well as being able to self-cue ourselves, you know, in everyday life by practicing that strategy. That's one that I use a lot with my patients who have aphasia that it's appropriate for. Um, One that you may be familiar with also is melodic intonation therapy. So this is a technique that kind of uses different parts of the brain that are more involved in music and singing to help improve verbal expression by, you know, kind of implementing more melody and rhythm into our speech in an exaggerated way. Um, The person with aphasia is also encouraged to tap their fingers to kind of help slow their rate of speech um, as well. One that is a little bit newer to my knowledge is something called oral reading for language in aphasia. And so this is a treatment that actually targets reading comprehension directly by using full sentences and also kind of using that intonation and prosody. And then one other one I wanted to just kind of go over was sentence production program for aphasia. So this is one that targets formation of sentences during either um, using eight different types of sentences. And they become more complex kind of as the program continues, um, starting with repetitions of sentences, progressing to answering questions, and then just generating those target sentences. And there's actually specific materials for this treatment and also some of the other ones. So Um, you can kind of look for those materials. But those are just some that, you know, I was familiar with and some that I was less familiar with. Um, This also gives some broad information just about like AAC um, and just kind of how to support communication with family members as well. Do you, do either of you, have you used the Orla computer program? I haven't, but I've seen that it's available. It, is it available? I'm trying to find it on my phone because I I used it when I was at Madonna. And I'm wondering. At one point, a, I did read about it, but I'm not sure who ever used it. So if you have a compact disc computer, you can use the computer-based Orla program, which is actually really cool because it comes up on the screen and then it like highlights the word mm-hmm. as they 
but yeah, lots of different approaches that we can take. And I love that this is just a nice compact resource to remind us of all the different approaches, because sometimes it can feel like, where do I start in trying to remember all of the different directions you can take is challenging. So this is a great place to start. Thank you. All right, Stephanie, back to you to talk about more research related to aphasia. Yes, so this one is the effectiveness of constraint-induced language a therapy for aphasia, evidence from systematic reviews and meta-analysis. And this was done in 2023, um, so very recent. Um, I personally really like constraint-induced language therapy. I know we have um, kind of a handful of them now in the resource library for people. Um, so I'm not sure if you two have used them with patients, but I, I definitely do. Um, so for patients, for this one, you want to make sure that they do have some functional um, verbal speech available. But really the idea is to, they're not allowed to use strategies. So you kind of have we in our material we have we have pictures and then there's like a picture scene and the patients have to use their ver their words to describe where the speech therapist or maybe the communication partner is going to place things so it really forces them in a way to use what speech they can to get a message across effectively so in this study um, systematic reviews in general, they often provide clinicians with a concise summary of certain treatment effects and practical guidelines or statements. And some systematic reviews may also include meta-analysis to complete a quantitative synthesis of the outcome measures for a study. So overall, the current systematic reviews found for constraint-induced language therapy treatments were optimistic for improving language and communication. Um, but when compared with meta-analysis, it was determined that patients improved with trained naming tasks, but they didn't improve with standardized aphasia assessment scores, such as the Western aphasia battery or the Atchin aphasia test. I hadn't heard of that one before. I don't know if either one of you have. Um, but with constraint-induced language therapy, you know, you are using maybe some words that aren't involved in those assessments. So maybe the generalization to those standardized tests aren't able to measure improvement in the score. Um, just kind of food for thought there. So it's not bad, but you may not measure this improvement in that those specific tests. Um, more recent systematic reviews concluded that there was no difference in language and communication outcomes between the constraint-induced language therapy and the effects of multi multimodal treatment. Um, with similar in intensity schedules. So future research is needed to provide clinicians with specific recommendations for how to use this treatment, what kind of intensity and frequency is needed, are there certain verbal constraints that need to be used to kind of maximize that patient outcome? Um, I think it's just a thing in general for aphasia treatment is that frequency and intensity I feel like is always missing in the recommendations. So I don't know if you two find that, but um, it's really hard when you are reading these research articles. It gives you good information, but it doesn't, you know, like lay it out for you sometimes. So I know that's frustrating for me as a clinician. And how do I apply this to everyday practice? Yeah, I mean, for me, like, 
Oh, sorry. I, didn't hear what. I was just saying I had not heard of that test either. Um, Stephanie. Yeah. For That's me, fine. when I read this, the biggest takeaway is that like aphasia treatment is such an individualized plan and with any of these approaches, you're probably going to have a hard time measuring progress with standardized assessments. Like if you think mm-hmm. about script training, like they'll be really good at saying the script, hopefully, but they're, it's never going to generalize to these assessments. And I think that's uniquely true to aphasia. <clears throat> and so it speaks even more about like how important it is to include quality of life measures and patient reported outcome measures. And I think it's just important for SLPs to know that we don't necessarily have to use standardized tests. We can Mm -hmm. use those other measures. And in a lot of ways, those are going to give us better information and we can still submit that information to insurance and we can still have conversations about the, the progress that we're making in therapy based on assessments that aren't standardized. So if anybody's feeling like they can't use quality of life measures or they can't use patient reported outcome measures because they're not standardized or insurance doesn't like that, I think if you if you were to call the insurance company and have a conversation, you could explain, you could use this research article to demonstrate that you're, there's evidence to show it's not going to generalize um, and so that's why we need to find other ways to see if what we're doing is making a difference. So yeah, just to kind of speak a little bit more on that, even just like when you do the Western aphasia battery, right. And your patient scores like mild anomic aphasia, but their quality of life is significantly impacted. Yes, they have a high score, but that does not really show what this person is experiencing. So I'm with you, Megan. I do typically lean more on those quality of life or patient um, outcomes of like them reporting how they're feeling versus so much on that standardized test. Mm -hmm. I know we want to kind of use less time. I feel like, you know, at least in inpatient rehab, our average length of stay is getting shorter and shorter, you know, two weeks, seven days sometimes where it feels like we're just getting an assessment done. I know we don't want to, you know, prolong that, but, you know, I know some people will kind of do that standardized assessment, but kind of incorporate those informal measures as well. I think we talked about this um, assessment last week a little bit. I don't think either of you were familiar with it, but it was the communication activities of daily living. It's called the cattle um, abbreviated and actually just used this this past week with a patient that I have that has Wernicke's aphasia. And I feel like it's just so much better at getting answers about how they would respond like in more functional activities. So, you know, showing pictures of a grocery store and asking questions like, well, what aisle would you find a notebook on? Or, you know, let's just say you were looking for shoestrings. How would you ask that? And it gives it, it leaves it more open-ended so that, you know, even if a person is having communication trouble, they can point, they can gesture, they can use words as long as they're getting that message across um, you know, that kind of increases that functional communication. So I just really enjoy that assessment too, to look at more, you know, open-ended responses and just more functional assessment too. And Jennifer, can you remind us, is that a test that you have to buy? Or is yes. It- yeah. It's a standardized assessment. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. That's, it sounds like a great assessment. Okay. 
Um, we're going to move on to our case study. This is a chance for us to talk about different cases from different perspectives and different clinical experiences. And then we also talk about the resources from the Therapy Insights Library that we might use in this case. So we had a request to focus on visual attention, left neglect. So we're going to talk about Bob. Bob is a 61-year-old male who works as an architect. He survived a right-sided stroke and is dealing with a significant dealing with significant left neglect. He is able to read and his pragmatic skills are within functional limits. He would like to finish designing a home he has been working on and then transition to being an adjunct professor at the local university. His biggest complaint is that he cannot fully participate in the design process because he isn't paying attention to the left side of blueprints. All right, Stephanie, what are your thoughts and what resource would you use in this case? I feel like I've seen a handful of Bobs like this in my recent days of therapy. Um, I always like this one because I think it's important to explain what the what the heck is left neglect. It's not something that is very common for people to know what it is and talking to family about it. Um, so I, this is an oldie but a goodie, um, just kind of explaining and having that conversation about this is maybe what you are experiencing. These are some symptoms, um, some risks, and then some treatment ideas. So, you know, really sometimes even putting like a picture of something really important on that left side, that person has to scan over and see their picture of their dog to kind of motivate them to get to that left side. Or, you know, talking about having family members sitting on that left side and, and, that patient has to find their eyes by kind of having the person use their voice. So um, just kind of rebuilding that left side is what's important because, you know, with a neglect, it's not a visual impairment. The, the patient's eyes are just fine. It's the brain doesn't understand that that part of that, that virtual world is gone. So we have to rebuild that. It's not just a visual field cut. And I think people, they can have both at the same time, not saying they can't, but I think it's just this really kind of difficult concept to, to grasp in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I agree. This handout is very simple. It breaks it down, but for people who have never heard of this before, it's a great introduction. Jennifer, what are your thoughts? Yes. So whew, left neglect is something that I did not feel like I ever heard about when I was in school, but it is something that I see so common in my patients who have had strokes, um, especially those right middle cerebral artery strokes. So this handout goes a little bit more in depth about the lighthouse strategy, which is talked about on the last resource as well. It just kind of talks about kind of how we train uh, visual scanning. So you know, thinking about when you stop, you know, going to a room or you're going into a new environment, stopping and scanning from light to right to left. So thinking about that lighthouse, that light beam going around, you know, 360. So that's what you want to do, you know, whenever you're, you know, walking into a new environment or you have something new in front of you that you're looking at um, visually scanning, you know, starting and thinking about that organized kind of left to right um, scanning. And so this is just kind of using that analogy with a lighthouse to 
teach the patient how best to um, kind of take on new environments, new activities, and implement those strategies to help organize their scanning. Excellent. Yeah, and I, I mean, I pulled this resource from the library. This is uh, a visual scanning task where we've talked about it before on the show where you're matching words to pictures. And if you put it on a trifold board, then you can really work on attending to that left side while moving around in space. But the other thing I would want to do in this case is ask Bob to bring in some old blueprints of projects that he's worked on and lay those out. And then really, because he's probably familiar with some of those older projects, he might be able to answer some questions and be able to attend to that information and get a little bit more success right away instead of these more unrelated tasks, which are also helpful, but they're just not related to the specific task that he's wanting to be able to do. So you could, um, you know, have him bring in one of those architectural rulers that have all the different scales on them, and you could start calculating maybe the room sizes of different rooms on the blueprints and challenging him to find, you know, where's the bathroom on this side of the blueprint or where where is the primary bedroom or whatever rooms are on the left side and then having him measure those and work on you know finding each line each perimeter line around the area and measuring that and figuring out the, the square footage and just tasks like that I think um, would boost his confidence and help him get back to the actual tasks that he wants okay. to do but all of these handouts and all of these tasks would, tasks would be very appropriate for him in therapy. And I think it's just one of those things that takes time. And I'm always amazed with inpatient rehab, how quickly like the, the brain really does start to learn like the awareness of that left side neglect. For some people, it takes a little bit longer, but some people really are able to grasp that it's completely missing and they will very much focus on paying attention to their left side and they'll go out of their way to put things like have their side table um, on the left side of the bed, have their shoes on the floor by the bed on the left side, um, making sure that they're, you know, they have cues on their mirror to attend to the left side, making sure they're doing all their shaving and grooming themselves and focusing on the left side. So I think the more that more motivated people are, they tend to improve faster. And the more support they have and the more education they're given about what's going on, the faster they're going to improve because they're just not aware of it. <laughs> So like we have to just constantly bring attention to that and inpatient rehab is a great setting to do that because that's when the brain is rebounding and there's that neuroplastic opportunity. Um, and so having the whole team, including nurses and CNAs and everybody just trying to make a cohesive team effort to like shift everything to the left, like everything that they want to pay attention to rather than making it easy and sitting on the right side of them, like entering the room and saying, hey, this is what we're going to work on today, or what do you want to work on today? And then telling them, I'm going to sit on the left side of your body, because I know that's more of a challenge for you. And so that's another layer of therapy that we're going to work on today. We've even had the opportunity to like push the bed all the way over. So mm -hmm. they have to look to the left or like putting that TV on the left at nighttime when they're watching TV, like just little simple things like that. Yeah, 
strategically kind of picking their rooms, depending on which direction it's facing. So one thing I struggle with at the early stages there was we're just kind of teaching those strategies as you know, I want to put things on that left side to challenge them, but also like know that if they're alone, I want them to be able to find it as well. So when it's that very early on stage, I always like struggle with that, but just kind of letting family members know at least when they're around or when we are in the room to kind of use those strategies to make them attend to the left a little bit better. Yeah, that's, you know, like, I don't think it's ever wise to put the call light on the left side. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, we also have to talk about too, you know, with the right CVA, they, the patient may not have awareness of their deficits. They may be very impulsive. So sometimes those things become most important and then the visual neglect will kind of, the the treatment for that will be more appropriate when they're not so impulsive or believe, you know, that they have something we need to work on. I do feel like I see a lot of progress with this, especially in inpatient rehab, because I mean, it's affecting everything. You know, we're working on it in speech therapy. They're working on it in occupational therapy and physical therapy. So I feel like just hearing it and working on those strategies in every single therapy helps them to progress a little bit better with this. Yep. Okay. And there are some new resources added to the library that were created by the occupational therapy team that SLPs might be interested in. One is a four-page resource called Delayed Recall, uh, which is a visual memory activity. So looking at some photo scenes and then being able to recall some of that information. And a two-page handout on shopping strategies for executive dysfunction. So talking about the executive function skills that are involved in shopping. And then the second page has a whole list of strategies that might be helpful for the person. And these are things that you could trial together in therapy or if you're in an outpatient setting, um, actually going to the store and working on those together could be useful. And that is a wrap for our show today. And like I said, this is our last resource roadmap show that we are producing. So if you do not have access to these resources, you can sign up for uh, a Therapy Insights membership at therapyinsights.com. All of the links that we have talked about are available in the show notes. And if you ever have questions for us or feedback, you can reach us at support at therapyinsights.com. And if you are a member, be sure to vote for what we create next. We definitely pay attention to what you need and what you're looking for. And thank you for watching. And thank you, Stephanie and Jennifer, for being with us today. Bye, everyone.